Well, good morning. It is good to be here today. I've enjoyed worshiping God together with all of you. I love hearing this congregation sing. So keep doing that. Keep singing. It's wonderful uh, to be a part of. I'd like to speak to you today about the kindness and the mercy of God. So already you might be thinking, great, let's do this. I need a positive, encouraging message today. And I do hope that you are encouraged by this sermon today. But I'd also like to talk to you about the wrath and the judgment of God. And you might be thinking, well, isn't that a different message? Like, can we just do the kindness one today and maybe save the wrath one for another day? Aren't they two separate ideas? Aren't they two separate sermons? We might think that kindness and judgment belong in two different sermons because we tend to think that kindness and judgment are opposites of one another. We might think you can either talk about kindness and mercy of God or you can talk about the judgment and wrath of God, but you really can't talk about them together in the same sentence. You can't have both. But the passage that we're looking at in Romans chapter 2 today does speak about both these ideas, and it helps us understand how they fit together in the character of God and how they're connected. And we'll see how God's kindness and God's wrath are actually directly related to one another. So to understand one, we do need to understand the other. So before we do that, uh, I need the Lord. We all need the Lord. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to, to lead us today. Lord God, we rely on your spirit to understand your word, to understand your truth. So right now in this moment, Lord, including me, we are just submitting ourselves before you and asking you to be our teacher, that your word would speak to our hearts, that you would lead us and, um, Lord, un correct our understanding and align it with your truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in the culture that we live in today, the society that surrounds us, there's, there's definitely a lot of confusion about kindness and wrath, kindness and judgment. I'm sure you've heard a lot of attacks against Christians these days, a lot of attacks that the church or Christians or biblical Christianity, it's got judgment in it. And we're criticized for it by our culture. They say, it shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't have judgment because, after all, look at Jesus. Jesus is all about being kind. He's about being kind to people. If you have kindness, then you can't have judgment. Again, our society seems to have those ideas as opposites. I've seen memes on social media. I don't think it was made by a theologian. They're often not, by the way. But I've seen a meme that says... Here's the message of the New Testament. Be kind to people. Any questions? And they boil down what the church really should be living for. is just, just be kind to people. That's an appealing message. But at the same time, if you try to make a moral judgment about something that is right or wrong, especially if it's regarding somebody else, you know what you hear pretty quickly. Who do you think you are? Who are you to judge? That's what we hear. No one has the right to judge. Especially this message comes at the church from our society around us. 
But ironically, that statement itself is actually a statement of judgment on the church. You have no right to judge. And at the same time, what confuses me even more, if you've been on social media, it's not a very kind place. It seems like everyone is making judgments about everything and everyone else. And often the kind of judgments we see are very unkind and very wrathful. There are countless blogs and podcasts and opinions and you ever read the comments on videos? It's, it's ridiculous how harsh the society is that we live in. And it's the same people often who say, you have no right to judge that demand kindness from the church that are so judgmental of everything. Everyone, it seems, has an opinion about everything. So if we want to understand kindness and judgment, I don't think our society is a good place to look. So let's turn to God's Word and understand who God is, understand what His kindness is like, understand what His judgment is like, and that'll help us understand how to live. Maybe you've heard the phrase in our society today, mercy for me, justice for you. It's kind of a lighthearted comment that, that criticizes the people who seem to, to uh, always demand mercy for their own shortcomings, but at the same time demand judgment for the shortcomings of those around them. And there's some truth to this saying for sure, but under the surface of this, of this saying, again, is the assumption that mercy and justice are opposites, that you can have one or the other. That's how we tend to think about mercy and judgment. But we know that the God revealed in the Bible is abundantly kind and merciful and abounding in love, Scripture says. And at the very same time, He is holy and the righteous judge. So He is both. So we need to look at the Scriptures to understand how that can be. And before we dig into the passage in Romans chapter 2, which was read earlier by Pastor Nick, I'd like to look at some of the big ideas of Romans chapter 1. And the reason I do that is because the first word in Romans chapter 2 is therefore. And the word therefore implies that there's been some reasoning and some thoughts leading up to that point, and now a conclusion is about to be drawn based on, on that reasoning. And so we have to, to really understand the context of Romans 2 and what that therefore is therefore, we have to look back at Romans 1. So here's an overview of some of the big ideas from Romans chapter 1. First of all, Romans chapter 1 introduces the idea of the gospel of God concerning Jesus, the Son of God, resurrected from the dead. And we look in these first verses of Romans chapter 1, and here's the introduction, this glorious gospel of God. This gospel was promised through the prophets, salvation through Jesus Christ, for the sake of his name through the nations of this earth. In fact, the book of Romans, this introduction is leading us into the book of Romans, which gives this masterful theological unfolding of the gospel of God. And then in verse 16, verse 17, another highlight point from chapter 1 is it says, in the gospel... In it, 
the righteousness of God is revealed. Think of that. It's a revelation from heaven to all the earth of the righteousness of God. This is through the gospel. It reveals the absolute righteousness of God, his absolute perfection, his absolute flawlessness, his absolute sinlessness, his absolute holiness is revealed through the gospel. It's revealed from heaven to all of us. And then in verse 18 also it says, something else is being revealed, the wrath of God from heaven against the unrighteousness or, or the ungodliness, or we can think of it as the false righteousness of man. This is a really big idea of Romans 1 and a big idea in the gospel, that these two revelations come through the gospel, the revelation of the glorious perfection and righteousness of God, and at the very same time, the glorious wrath of God is being revealed at the same time. Because what happens is when God's glory and God's righteousness is revealed, and it's compared with all the righteousness of man, all the false righteousness of man becomes indicted. It becomes exposed for being false. Compared to the glorious righteousness of God, his wrath is revealed right along with it on everything else that falls short. You know, these do get displayed together. We might think that a revelation of God's holiness and perfection is just going to be so nice. And so wonderful. I know some worship songs that say, Lord, show us your full glory. That's a wonderful thing to pray for, but realize it is wonderful and it is terrifying. When God displays his full glory, his righteousness, his absolute perfection, all sin is indicted before him. His wrath is also revealed against all sin. So we have to realize that this, these revelations of who God is come through the gospel, a revelation of his goodness and glory, and right along with that, a revelation of his wrath and indictment against all ungodliness. But then in verse 18, in chapter 1, it says this truth that God has revealed has been resisted. It's been suppressed or rejected by man which is really a rejection of God himself. You can look in verses 18, 19, and 20. It's actually a rejection of his divine attributes. Put, think of it this way. Mankind has stood in the face of this glorious revelation from heaven of God's glory and his righteousness and his wrath. Mankind has figuratively put up their hand and said, no, no. We choose instead a different way. As a result of that rejection, mankind has attempted to exchange. And the rest of chapter 1 talks about that exchange that mankind attempts to do, replacing real glory with false glory, replacing real truth with false truth, real wisdom for foolishness, the natural for the unnatural. And then many examples are given in the rest of the chapter, 23 through 31. It talks about worshiping created things, how mankind has done that, how they basically are worshiping themselves. They've rejected God. They live by lies instead of living by the truth. 
Sexual perversion is described as those who are basing their, their moral decisions on false standards. They've rejected what God has made and instead are living by man-made standards. See, human sexuality is a great example of that because it is, it is created by God. It is part of his creation in this world, that he was his idea and his design. So to suppress God's truth would be to reject God's design for human sexuality. And it's actually a rejection of God, our creator. It talks about debased thinking, thinking falsely based on a false morality. Even the way that mankind thinks has been affected in this attempt to suppress the revelation of who God is. All sorts of evil against others is listed because they have exchanged God's righteousness, which was revealed, for their own false righteousness instead. And then if you look at the last verse of chapter 1, instead of accepting God's righteous judgment over all of us, humankind has put themselves in the seat of judgment instead. Look at verse 32. Though they, have, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So it's not as if the sin isn't bad enough. Think of that last part. When you give approval to those who do sin, what you're doing is you're putting yourself in the seat of a moral judge. It's one of the ways that God has been rejected because we say, God, we're not going to live by your standards. I'm going to set up my own mini throne of judgment and I'll decide whether it's good or not. In this rejection of God, this suppressing of the truth, mankind has set up all kinds of little thrones of judgment where we can sit and act as judge. This is the last thought before we get to the word, therefore, in chapter 2. So let's go on to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I'll read these three verses first. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? If we read these verses in isolation without looking back at chapter 1, at first glance, it might seem like hypocrisy is the real problem that's being addressed here. You have these judges who are condemning someone and they had committed the same crime, so to speak. And certainly hypocrisy is wrong, but there's a bigger picture here. We see that the sinful people who judge others have already rejected God as judge and have put themselves in his place. They have made their own standards. So when they condemn other people for not living up to a moral standard, they have already violated that by putting themselves as judge. And they are guilty too. They can't condemn someone for violating God's judgment because they violated God's judgment just to put themselves in the seat of judge. This brings us to an important question, I think, for Christians. 
I wonder if you've uh, wondered this thought before. Is it okay for Christians to judge? I mean, our society's telling us, who do you think you are? Who are you, who are you to judge? And the assumption would be, yeah, we can't, we can't make any, any moral judgments at all. There's a couple verses that relate to this. Jesus in Matthew 7, he said, do not judge lest ye be judged. Probably you have a lot of unchurched friends who can quote that verse. It seems to be a favorite verse of our culture. Do not judge lest ye be judged. And for some reason we remember it in King James. Do not judge lest ye be judged. But out of context, it seems like it's never okay to make a judgment. But remember, in John 7, 24, Jesus also said this when talking to his disciples. He said, don't just judge by mere appearances. Judge with a right judgment, Jesus told them. So Jesus actually did tell his disciples to make judgments. So which is it? Do not judge or make a right judgment? And the key here, as always, in understanding God's word is context. In John 7, when Jesus told his disciples to make a good judgment, he was telling them to be discerning of what is good based on God's standards, according to God's righteousness, that they are to, without partiality, make good judgments. You know, I didn't have time to put this in uh, here, but I found several passages that talk about good judgment and making right judgment that in that passage, and Romans 2 is no exception, it talks about God judging with no partiality. So part of God's character is to judge with no partiality. So just a little side note on that. Look for that. When you see the judgment of God, it's without partiality. So Jesus here is telling them in Matthew 7, make a good judgment, um, make a good judgment based on God's standards. Um, excuse me, that was in John 7. So, of course, we have to make good judgments on what's right and wrong, right? We have to. But we have to judge in that sense, according to his standards. But in Matthew 7, when Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged by the world, by that same standard, Jesus is talking about self-righteous hypocrites who have put themselves on a throne of judgment over someone else. That's what Jesus said, don't do as if they were the ones who made the standards, the fault finders who are quick to condemn, the people who do expect justice for everyone else but just overlook their own shortcomings, those who use judgment as a weapon against somebody else, those who judge in this way are putting themselves in the seat of judgment where only God is worthy to sit. So Christians are to be discerning, and we need to make good judgments according to what God says. But once we put ourselves in the seat of judge by our own standard, our judgment becomes false because we are all subject to the righteous judgment of God. And Romans 2, 3 says, the holy, righteous judgment of God, it's inescapable. We are all subject to it. And there's nothing we can do about that. So at this point, you might be wondering, okay, um, Pastor Carl, you said kindness of God. Where is the kindness of God in all of this? What does God's kindness have to do with the righteous wrath and inescapable judgment of God? Read with me verses 4 and 5. 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So again, in the gospel, the absolute righteousness of God is revealed. And if we receive that revelation without suppressing it, we will be struck with awe. He is more holy than we could have imagined. He is more morally flawless than we could have imagined. He is more glorious than we could even comprehend. And along with that revelation of his holiness, at the same time is a revelation of his wrath against evil, against our sin. And there's a realization that we actually deserve his wrath because we have fallen short. But in the midst of all of that going on, we see this diamond start to gleam in the middle of the passage. Something even more amazing. This holy, righteous, awesome God, hear me, he is kind. He is patient. He is forbearing with us. That just means he puts up with us. This holy, righteous God has mercy on us. We don't deserve it, but he is so kind. Praise God, he is kind. The kindness of God is often misunderstood. It was misunderstood in this first century when this was first written. The kindness of God is misunderstood often today as well. And here's how. It's when people presume on his kindness. Don't misinterpret God's kindness. God is patient. God is kind. But don't misunderstand why. And those who received this scripture in the first century, they had to be addressed because they were misunderstanding why God is kind. You see, God's eternal kindness, it's part of his character. It's part of who he is. He will always be kind and he always has been. But his eternal kind character is being shown to sinners for a temporary purpose. A purpose that has a start and it does have an end. This kind eternal character of God, this permanent eternal character of God is being expressed towards sinners for a time, for a purpose. And that purpose is to lead us to repentance. God shows kindness to us. He shows patience. He shows mercy to lead us to repentance so that we would turn away from sin. And the purpose of God's kindness expressed to sinners, it has an end date. Verse 5 says that there is a day, the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. His righteousness has been revealed in the gospel. His wrath against sin has been revealed in the gospel. And just as sure as those are true, a day of wrath is coming when his full righteous judgment will be revealed. And God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance before 
it's too late. There were those then, and there are some now, who presume on God's kindness, who don't realize that God's kindness has a purpose. They might just take it in itself. Some say, well, Jesus is kind. He would never judge anyone. Well, yes, Jesus is kind. But according to Scripture, he will most certainly judge everyone. He will return, Scripture has promised, to earth with holy, impartial, righteous judgment. He will pronounce final judgment over everyone. You'll see the argument today, sometimes it's from people who don't know a lot about Jesus. They'll say, look at Jesus. He doesn't judge people. He's just about being kind. But his kindness has a purpose to bring us to repentance because his judgment is coming. God's patience has a purpose that we would not remain in sin, but turn from it and turn to him. Some people think God shows kindness instead of judgment. Some think that kindness is the opposite of judgment. But no, God shows kindness precisely because of his judgment, because he knows that day is coming. God's kindness has a purpose of leading us to repent because his righteous judgment is on the way. His righteousness has been revealed. Sin has been indicted. And his kindness to sinners has a purpose of leading us to repentance. God's wrath and kindness are not opposites. In fact, right now, God is expressing both of them at the same time. In verse 5, it says that this period of for God's forbearance and patience, if it's rejected by impenitent hearts, it says, wrath gets built up. So at the same time God is showing kindness and it's rejected by some, it says God is also building up his wrath against sin. God's patient forbearance with sin doesn't, shouldn't be misinterpreted to mean, well, everything's okay, I guess. I guess everything's fine with God. It's not fine. And it's not getting better. It's actually getting worse. His wrath is being stored up before judgment comes. And in verse 5, it says that his righteous judgment will be revealed. Nothing will be missed. There will be no partiality on that day. The absolute righteous and holy judgment of God is on the way. Now, I've been a pastor for a while, and I've learned what it looks like when people presume on God's kindness. I've seen people I love do this. Sometimes people will stray into an area of disobedience, an area of sinful behavior, like they're just kind of testing the water to see if the circumstances work out okay. Parents, you've seen this, right? If you told your kid, don't, don't touch that thing or don't, don't touch the stove or, or, or don't eat that hot mustard, that happened with my toddler. Don't eat that, that hot uh, wasabi mustard on the table. But then after I left the room, he just got a little closer, you know, just kind of wandered around the table and touched the table, right? Then he climbed up on the chair and he reached over and just looked at the outside of the wasabi mustard. And 
Before long, I heard from the other room, I don't like it, I don't like it, because you had a mouthful of wasabi mustard, right? That's what they do. They just test out the circumstances to see, you know, can, can my parents really be trusted? A little bit more, a little bit more. It's funny with kids sometimes, but I've seen this with adults. They know that relationship is wrong. They know that behavior is wrong. But maybe I'll just try it out and see what the, see what the consequences are. And sometimes people might find the consequences bearable. And that's bad news. They might think, this is working out okay. Lightning didn't strike. I guess God accepts it after all. But my friends, this is not God being okay with sin. This is an expression of God's kindness and patience and forbearance. And it has a purpose. And the purpose is that they would be led to repentance before it's too late. This is not God being okay with sin. Presuming on God's kindness is missing the purpose of God's kindness. And in the meantime, as time goes on, things aren't getting better. They're getting worse over time. Perhaps right now for you, and this is between you and the Lord, you might be in a period of disobeying God, and you know it. Maybe some choices that you're making that you know are not right, or it could be something you know God wants you to do, and you're just like, no, God, I'm not doing that. You're just blatantly not doing that, and you're trying your own way instead and weighing the consequences. If that's the case for you, let me lovingly tell you to watch out, beware of weighing those consequences. Because you might say, this is manageable. I, I can cope with this. I can manage the way these consequences are right now. Even though you know that you're not doing what God has called you to or you're doing something you shouldn't. Be careful of presuming on God's patience and confuse it with his approval. God's patience is not the same as God's approval. What you are experiencing is a temporary period of God's mercy, and it has a purpose that you would be brought to repentance. Let God's kindness serve its purpose and turn to him again. Look, I know we're all human beings. I know we all have a sinful nature. Sometimes we don't face the full consequences of our, and judgment for our sin. And praise God. Can you imagine if that's what it were like? As soon as you strayed in your thoughts or in actions, the full judgment of God right there. Praise God. He's not like that. He's kind and patient and forbearing for a purpose that we would be led to repentance. God's kindness toward you in the midst of your sin is so that you would repent before the fullness of his righteous judgment is revealed. Now, I'd like to make something clear here. The Bible really only gives us one way to be prepared for the righteous judgment of God. The only way we can be prepared for the day of wrath is to put our faith in Christ. 
all of the wrath that we deserve was poured out on him so that we can receive salvation as a gift through faith in him. This is the only way for all of us to be ready for the day of judgment. So praise God for that gospel. But we also know that between now and then, our sinful nature just hangs on. Repentance is not just a one-time thing. It will need to be a regular part of our lives. We will continue to fall short. We will continue to sin against God. We'll continue to sin against others. And praise God also, he has already made provision for that too. Through the incredible mercy and kindness of God, he has made a way for you to repent, to turn away from that sin, to find forgiveness again and again. Aren't you glad that God has provided that for us? Day after day, you can turn to him, you can trust that he's merciful and kind, you can repent, and you can be forgiven. God doesn't kick us out. God doesn't ignore us. God doesn't get back at us. He is kind to us, and that purpose is to lead us to repentance. Every time you have to repent, let it be a time of praise. And you don't really feel like praising when you're repenting, but praise God while you repent, because it is a way that has been provided through Christ. It's a provision for you. And you know that as you confess your sins, Scripture says he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from unrighteousness. Remember in the gospel, the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness. Well, look at 1 John 1, 9. When we confess our sins, he cleanses you of all unrighteousness. And there goes the wrath. If the unrighteousness is gone, there's nowhere left for God's wrath for you. There's no wrath left. It's all on Christ. You know, there's another helpful application point, I think, in this passage. It can help us as Christians to know how to live in relationship with other people around us who are in a time of embracing sin. And it could be a friend of yours or a family member. It could even be other Christians. Sometimes you're put in a situation where people around you are embracing sin, and then they turn, well, they're calling what's good evil, and they're calling what's evil good, and then they might even turn against you in the process and start to pressure you to give approval for what is wrong. When this happens to you, this passage does give us some helpful guidance. First of all, do not sit on your own mini throne of judgment. You're a sinner too. They are violating God's standards, not yours. They answer to him ultimately, not you. You will not become the one who measures what is good and evil in their lives based on what you find acceptable. You are not the standard. Stay out of God's chair. Let him be the judge. 
Second, this passage helps us see we are called to use good judgment. Do not engage in the sin yourself. Make sure that you are living accountable to God's standards. Watch yourself in that situation. We are all subject to the righteousness of God, and so we all have to live in accountability to God. So be humble and honor God. Use good judgment, but it is not your place to be their final judge. A third admonition from this passage, actually is from the last verse of chapter 1, do not approve of those who do. Do not approve of those who do. There's a lot of pressure on us to approve of sin. And many try, many try that way to be kind of accommodating. But we cannot do this. Let me read this uh, verse 32 again. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If you're being pressured to give approval for evil, that's actually another way of sitting in the throne of God and being the one who declares what's right and what's not. There's a lot of pressure against Christians to change our standards. But they are not our standards to change. They belong to him. So stay out of God's chair and do not give approval for what is wrong. So how do we respond as followers of Christ? Instead of acting as judge or approving sin, we're called to act like God does. Be a conduit of his kindness. We are to show kindness and forbearance and mercy in his name. And we show this kindness to those around us in the hopes that they will be led to repentance. We do not show mercy instead of judgment. We are to show mercy because we're all subject to God's judgment. Let God show his kindness and mercy through you. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters, our holy Righteous God, be reminded he's incredibly, abundantly full of kindness and mercy. So let God's kindness work its purpose in your life. If you're experiencing God's mercy toward you, his patience, respond the way that he is intending that kindness to be responded to. Let it lead you to him. Let it lead you to repentance. If you're in a period of disobedience, God has made a way for you. Turn from it. He's so merciful. Let his mercy fill your life, and then you'll be ready to show that mercy to others who need it. James 2.13 says, mercy triumphs over judgment. That does not mean that God has mercy instead of judgment. God remains just and holy. But as you draw near to him in repentance, you'll find that his mercy, it envelops your life. His mercy will fill your life. 
and overflow to others. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, we first of all thank you that you have expressed kindness and mercy and patience toward us. We acknowledge you as the holy, righteous God revealed from heaven to all of us. And we recognize that we have fallen short. And we also recognize that Jesus Christ has brought salvation so that his name would be glorified in all the nations of this earth. Lord, I pray that we would respond to your kindness and be ready to show that kindness to others. We pray that it would serve its purpose of leading us to repentance. Thank you, God, for um, this time together. We pray that you would be working and leading us uh, to respond to you as you would want us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.